Well, hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reasons, the show. I am the host and glad to be with you today. It's a little bit of an unusual day. I'm off schedule in terms of the broadcast, so you can't call in as you normally could, 855-243-9975 on Tuesdays from 4 until 6 p.m. Pacific time, okay, because I'm not... Here on a Tuesday, it's actually a Wednesday, and sometimes I anticipate times I'll be out of town, and so I come in for special shows. But we we have a fabulous um, new thing that uh, Amy, I think, thought up. Was that you? Somebody else. Who did? Eric. Derek. (laughs) What's his name? I'll never forget what's his name. He's only been working here about 15 years. Derek, one of our executive staff, came up with the idea of having people have the ability to call in off hours or to record questions off hours, either by phoning in 857-342-5787 or by going to the homepage, str.org, and then under podcasts and live broadcasts, the feature there, to be able to record a short question, like like for a hashtag str ask you know twitter length now it turns out they're not always twitter length some of them are 60 seconds fine some of them are here's a two two minutes 21 seconds uh, most of them are under a minute and that's what we're looking for okay if you can manage that and in recording them that gives us a backlog of callers so that when i come in on strange times like this to do broadcasts that need to be done in advance i can uh draw from that that uh, that reserve of callers and answer personal questions. It's also helpful to you because many people can't call in during the time that I'm on the show and uh, and also you 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 can't get your question down into what 220 characters or whatever Twitter size for hashtag STR ask with Amy and I. So this uh, gives you another opportunity. We actually have quite a backlog of calls and I try to move down these calls in order that they're given. So if you've called in and haven't heard your, your question dealt with yet, um, be patient. It will eventually uh, get to it and we'll get to a few of those today. But I, I wanted to start with a reflection uh, of something I remember from when I was a, a kid. Now, in our family, uh, there were five kids and my mom and dad. And actually, for uh, two years or so, we had a single mom with her two children that were living with us in our three, all in our three-bedroom apartment. So we had two boys and make that three boys and two girls in our family. And then there was a boy and a girl and a mom in the other family. And so that put four males in one bedroom and four females in the other bedroom. And my mom and dad had their own bedroom. So we had a smallish ranch house house with four, four, uh, rather three bedrooms and two and a half baths. And it was enough to hold all of us. So that was kind of crazy for a few years, but, and that was actually in the early sixties and, uh, single moms were quite rare back then, which in a sense is part of my reflection, I guess, or it's relevant to this reflection. There's something that I recall about thing, something my mom used to say 
when we were around the dinner table. Incidentally, in my family, my, my, my dad was an orphan. He lost his parents when he was 10 years old through a car accident and got bounced around. He had two older sisters that helped a little bit with him, but he got bounced around between orphanages and friends and whatever. And so what he was really looking for was a family. And so uh, he met my mom in 19, uh, let's see, 1948, uh, or maybe 47. I think they got married in 48 when they were both 18. They had my sister, Sue, when they were 49, had me in 1950, then Mark in 52, Dave in 54, Bonnie in 56. So that means when Bonnie was born, 56, my parents were born in 1929, uh, that means they had five kids and they were 26 years old. And actually, when there were four of us, uh, we were living in a farm in northern Wisconsin, and uh, on Good Friday, 1955, that building burned right to the foundation. We barely got out in the middle of the night with our lives, nothing else, except for a ham. My my parents were poor. Uh, it was a clapboard house. We had an outhouse. We didn't have indoor plumbing. And... Mom had bought a, purchased a ham for Easter Sunday, two days later, and uh, that was what she grabbed. <laughs> Ironically, the the ham after the fire would have at least arguably been edible, <laughs> already cooked. But nevertheless, that's what she saved, and nothing else. Her wedding pictures, all their belongings. For many years, my dad had a a, a clump of coins that had melted together placed on his dresser, because it had been on his dresser in Wisconsin at the farm, and when the farm burned down and that dresser burned and everything around it, it melted those coins into an amalgam. And you could tell the different coins, but they were all melted together. I wish I had that, actually. don't know what happened to it, but I remember seeing it when I was a kid. But my dad, with four kids at this point in 1955 and 20... Let's see, 29 to 55, he was born... That was He was 25 years old. No. Yes, he was 25 years old with four kids, and he had to declare bankruptcy and moved to Chicago. We moved into a basement, the six of us, and then he started all over. He's a hard worker. But he was in charge of the family. He was the head of the home. He was responsible for the family. He was the provider for the family. And he's a very hard worker, and I guess some of that rubbed off on me, uh, and which I appreciate. But there was something that my mom used to say that I recall, especially around dinner time. I think, is when I heard this. My dad sat at the head of the table. All of us sat down along the table, and uh, we had grace. We were Roman Catholic, so there's a particular prayer that we all said together as a family very quickly. My mom didn't care for the rapidity with which we all knocked this out, and we were all done, and she's still on the first sentence saying the prayer slowly, you know, like, anyway. So it wasn't perfunctory to her, but it was to the rest of us. But my dad was at the head of the table, and he got served first. And there were certain, mm, I'm trying to think of the right word, the first word that came to mind were privileges. I don't think this is the right. There were certain signs of respect that were shown him for a particular reason. And this was embodied in the statement that I recall my mom 
making. And here's what she said. She said, your father is the breadwinner. Your father is the breadwinner. In other words, your dad is the one who has provided everything that's on this table. Your dad is the one who has provided the table. Your dad has the one who's provided the house that the table is in, and all of us are in. Dad has a special role in our family because of his responsibility to take care of us and sacrifice to that end, and therefore he deserves a, a particular and a peculiar respect. Now, of course, my dad demanded that all of us respect mom. And in fact, we could never refer to my mom in the third person. Well, speaking to my dad, well, she said that I could do it. Who's she? Mom said that I could do it. Now, this might seem to many now as unusual or archaic, but what my dad was doing was he was building into our language the habit of speaking respectfully regarding our mother. Um, and incidentally, that didn't mean across the board that referring to a person in the third person was disrespectful, but it was a way in which my dad had identified the manner in which we could express respect for mom, okay? Like, you don't have to say sir or yes sir, no sir. Lots, Very few people do that nowadays, youngsters, except for maybe in the South. But when it's done, it's an acknowledgment of a, a, of a, um, a hierarchy that uh, is in place that expresses respect for elders. In this case, an elder male, yes, sir, or female, yes, ma'am. So there are forms in our society that we have to express respect, and these forms are conventions. They could be different. But in this particular case, this was the convention in our family by which my dad um, required us to show respect for mom. So there was respect that was required for both of my parents from the kids. And there was respect required by both of my parents for other adults. In other words, for example, we were told, you don't correct adults. You don't tell an adult they're wrong. Why? Is that because adults are never wrong? No, adults are wrong lots of times. But when a kid corrects an adult, that's the kid saying, I'm smarter than you, I know more than you, I'm above you. And that was just out of line. And by the way, adults usually know better than kids. <laughs> okay, a whole lot of foolish people nowadays, to the contrary. Oh, we have a lot to learn from children. Really? What? In any event. Maybe a sense of innocence uh, about life, I guess, because they they because they're innocent about life. But largely, no, we don't. Kids have a lot to learn from adults, and this is why there is respect that is shown adults of all persons, especially those in authority. In my family, that included teachers, that included law enforcement officers, uh, that included uh, bosses. <laughs> 
all of those people in authority deserved respect. And we learned to show that. And it carries along with me now into my later years of my life. I'm glad for that. But there was this thing that my mom said regarding my dad. He's the breadwinner. That uh, that conveyed a particular and a peculiar respect to my father in the particular and peculiar role he had in our family. Now I think this is all very good. Uh, for most of my life growing up, my mom did not work. In fact, we weren't even a two-car family. Most families were not two-car families. That was rare until you got until the later sixties. Okay. Uh, most had one car and dad took it to work and mom stayed home and was a mother and took care of the children. They weren't latchkey kids. And so when kids came home, and I remember this quite distinctly, coming home, coming into the house, what was the first thing that we said when we came into the house? I'll tell you what it was, or at least in my case, mom, Mom, no, I, I didn't want mom for any particular reason. That's not why I said that. I came in there because I'm just connecting and checking, and yes, mom is still here, and the household is still taken care of, and everything's fine. We're good. If mom wasn't there, where's mom? And so there's this instinctive looking to the leadership of our home, in this case, mom, when I came home, and the sense of security that I felt in my heart, because when I came home, mom was there. Um, I also remember when I was in junior high, seventh or eighth grade, in this case, this would be the early 60s, and my mom did get a second vehicle, old used vehicle, I think it was a Comet. Some of you remember that vehicle. And she got a job as a cocktail waitress which was in the evening. My dad was, because of the nature of his work, was spending quite a bit of time as a union organizer in Chicago area in northern Illinois, out of town, organizing for unions. So he was he spent, during that time, a considerable amount of time out of town. And this gave my mom an opportunity in the evenings when the kids were put to bed. And so we went to bed at bedtimes. I don't know, maybe it was 8.30, nine o'clock, I don't know, something like that. But I tell you what I do remember. She got a job as a cocktail waitress at a at a place called uh, Henrici's. Uh, uh, it was at, at O'Hare Airport, I think it was. In any event, it was an evening job, and everything was taken care of, and we were put to bed, and off mom went. But I was laying awake in bed, and I could hear her start the car and drive away. And as she, this was my sense as I lay there in bed awake, hearing the car drive away with my mother leaving the house. And all of us now were left alone. Now, I was, what, I guess 13. My sister was 14. We, as a family, as kids, took lots of responsibility. We had lots of chores, lots of jobs things that we were responsible to do. My mom never did dishes. It was always the kids. My sister and I were the dishwashers and dryers. We alternated back and forth. 
and then the younger kids either cleared the table or put away the dishes or swept the floor, you know, and they rotated those three jobs. But we did all that. I was in charge of the yard. We had a pretty big yard. I had to mow the lawn, clip the bushes, keep it looking nice, and I did that well. We had to take the trash cans out when it was time and every week, and all of these things the kids did. We had responsibilities. So when Mom left, it wasn't like we were inept. We had no capability of managing ourselves. And anyway, we were in bed. It, it was okay. I'm not criticizing my mom in this regard. However, I'll tell you emotionally what I felt, that as that car drove away, it was as if something was connected to the bumper of that car and my heart. And as it pulled away, something was being pulled out of my heart. A sense of safety and security, and and um, I'm not exactly sure how to how to explain it but as i as that took place and she left i felt this sense of loss and emptiness it wasn't traumatic but it was enough for me it was unsettling and it was enough for me at that time to make a commitment 13 years old maybe 12 because it was my 14th birthday that we moved from this location to another city so I was either 12 or 13 years old, and I made a commitment that I'm never going to have my wife work instead of being a mom to our family. I never wanted any of my children to have the feeling that I was feeling at that time. Now, I'm not saying every kid that has mom works that has this feeling, but I am, I am trying to reflect on a period of time when there was a different value system, because all of these things that I'm describing— reflects a way of thinking or a way of understanding life or a value system that has largely disappeared, has largely disappeared. Uh, now dad's not the breadwinner. Mom and dad are the breadwinners. I'm not objecting to women working. That's not my point. But I do, th- I, I, I do think that there is a a a teleology to family, a God-ordained design, and that that God made men and women different, and they function in different roles, especially when it comes to having children. And when I married my wife in 1998, finally, I had my my 48th birthday on my honeymoon, Actually, she could say finally, too, and her friends could say finally, because it was five years and in, in, before, you know, I popped the question, and all her girlfriends were mad at me for, for dragging my feet. In any event, I retired my wife. She quit her job, and I wanted her to have the freedom to have children, raise kids, be a homemaker, do her crafts, volunteer. And also, since my the the well-being or the provision for a home was based on my income. If it turned out that for a season she was working until we, we had children or whatever, that wasn't a required income for maintaining our home and our lifestyle. That money could be set aside so that when the time came, she could give her life to something else. Because I was the breadwinner. Why? Because I was responsible. 
that responsibility felt on my, fell on my shoulders, and consequently, and along with it, the leadership of the family. Now, it is kind of sweet, not, though I've not heard this phrase, Dad's the breadwinner, for a long time. Um, when we have meals on our table, and the main dish is put on the table, all, the main dish is always put by my place, so I can slice up the beef or ladle out the soup or whatever it happens to be for the rest of the family. And it's oh, it, to me, this is a carryover of this mentality. Remember, my wife's parents uh, were, <laughs> were old-timers. Oh, maybe you didn't know this. My wife's father was born three weeks before the Titanic sank. And uh, her mother was born the last year of the First World War. So they had old-fashioned values. And, uh, and, and Trova, my mother-in-law, they're both gone now, obviously, but, um, but Trova uh, didn't have an outside job, at least as far as I know when she was raising the family, but she did do volunteer work, and a lot of it. And so there was a freedom to do that, and the family was cared for, cared for by Dad, the breadwinner. And I think this habit of my wife, you know, positioning the food that way, I've never actually talked to her about it, is a carryover maybe from her own family's values that reflect the same idea. Okay. But what we have now is we have, through the advent of, I think, a perverse sense of feminism, I think there is a legitimacy to certain aspects of it. Uh, but the way it's gone is is really trying to. This is my assessment now as I look back. It is trying to make women into men, and conversely, make men into women. Watch the movies; you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, putting up women in jobs that are not suited for their physicality. Yet, because women have to have the same as men, the standards end up getting changed uh, against wisdom, given the nature of the job, because of the uh, the fact that women can't maintain those standards. So what do we have to do? We still have to have the same. Uh, it's just a side complaint. But there's a larger thing going on here, you know, and that is the loss of headship. Um, and, of course, this is a challenge even in Christian circles. Uh, egalitarianism, the view that both are equal. I'm just telling you something. This doesn't work. It doesn't work in any organized enterprise. It doesn't work at standard reason. Everybody's got their job to do, and they don't get micromanaged, and their opinions are, matter. But when push comes to shove, which occasionally happens, though not usually, um, there's got to be a leader that breaks the tie, that makes the decision. The buck stops here. And that's just the way, that's just the reality about how things are run. You can't just have everything up for a vote, because then nobody's responsible, for one. And um, that isn't the way God made the world. God made families and, in a sense, employment. In a certain way, there are heads for all of those things, and this is why in the New Testament we see frequent exhortations to respect the order of leadership. 
whether it's in a an employment circumstance, whether it's in a parent-child relationship or a, a husband-wife relationship. It is all through the New Testament. Whenever these things are touched on, this hierarchy of role, not value, is always in place and emphasized, because that's what brings order and productivity. And so what happens when that disappears from the family? Well, you have disorder and a lack of productivity, and you have other problems too. Because what happens now when you have a school system that is run by the government that profoundly and thoroughly indoctrinates children to a a particular, and in the broadest sense I'm calling this a political view, but it isn't just about partisan politics. It is about ideology of life and sexuality and all kinds of other things, and it's all indoctrinated into the children through the educational system. And parents are up in arms. But what can they do? They have no other choice. Why don't they have any other choice? There are private schools. There are private schools that are that are not excessively expensive. There, there are um, homeschool is an option, a very, very well-developed option. So you don't have to be brilliant to do it. You just have to stay one day ahead of your kids. And the curriculums are turnkey, and there's whole communities that will help you. It's all doable. Not for us. Why not? Because we both work. See what's happened? We build the family around two incomes rather than one, and therefore we must continue to keep earning two incomes in order to maintain the home. And guess who suffers? The children suffer. Now, you might be thinking, oh, not mine. They've adapted fine. Everybody does the same thing. It's true. This is the standard nowadays. But that doesn't mean children aren't suffering, even if children aren't complaining. I don't think I ever said to my mom, you know, Mom, it really hurts me when I hear your car driving away. I feel like, like, like something sucked out of me. I feel alone and vulnerable. I never said that to her. I never said, hey, Mom, do you ever notice that whenever I come into the house, I always say, hey, Mom. And what I'm doing is just checking to make sure that everything's okay, you're here, and home is safe, and I feel safe. I never said that either. Frankly, I don't know that children are even reflective on this like I was, but I'm convinced of the consequence. I can't imagine what my wife would do if she had a job, because we got teenagers, especially one that's very social, and so she's mom's Uber, right? Or Uber Eats, as the case may be. And we just have two, and only one is really social. I don't know what families do with five, six, seven, eight, nine. A lot of Christian families with lots of kids. We had five. Well, we didn't get driven everywhere. <laughs> Why not? Because we didn't have a car. So we had to make do. We had hobbies. We had chores. We had things that kept us occupied as we're contributing to the home. And we didn't get an allowance 
for doing the things that were appropriate just to make a contribution to the household. Special chores, special jobs, sure. But I made money mowing lawns of the neighbors. If I could get five bucks for a big lawn, boy, that was a lot of money. Or shoveling their driveways when it snowed. Remember, I grew up in Chicago. All right, these are and different things that we did. Pulled weeds and other people. What are different things we figured out, made ourselves available, earned some money. That's what we did. Industrious. Uh, we weren't shuttled around everywhere to all our fun little things uh, that many kids are now. So I'm just talking about a dynamic here. This isn't a, a, this isn't a screed against women working. This isn't a, a screed against, uh, you know, even feminism itself. But I, I, it is an, a, 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 an acknowledgement or an observation that things have changed radically and, and to a great degree not for the better. But we have gotten in the habit of doing this because everybody else is doing it. And we've been able, we've been willing to live, what well, we used to talk about latchkey kids. Now, I don't know if you guys even remember that phrase. Many of you will. But a latchkey kid is a kid who had a key for the house around his neck. And so when the bus or whatever dropped him off at home, nobody else is home. The doors are locked. He's got to get in. He's got a key around his neck to open the door to enter an empty house when he gets back from school to do whatever until his mom or and or his father get back from work. So the, there's a, a disruption there, it seems to me, in a kind of family environment that is best for children. But we have bought into a value system that makes that kind of thing very hard to do. Now, are they people who manage well in the midst of the challenges? Sure. My wife was a single mom. Dane was 16 when we got married. She did great. She worked hard, all to her credit. But it wasn't ideal. It wasn't the best. It wasn't the way, in a sense, God ordained things. And um, as, as, I, as I, I look back on, on those days, I, I'm a bit wistful about it. I miss them. I think our society would be a lot better off if moms devoted themselves during child-rearing years to child-rearing. And they would be able to do that if they worked before they were married and after they're married, if when they were married, they lived off of one income, the breadwinner's income, the leader's income, the one responsible for caring and protecting for the family, that would be dad. Because he is best suited for that role. And then mom is free to give her full attention to raising children, which is a big job and a really important one. I know it's denigrated in our culture now as like second best. Nevertheless, I, th I think that value is twisted. And our children would be much better off if when they got home, 
and they opened the door, and they said, Mom! There was someone there to answer. And when they had dinner, Dad gets a privileged position because, after all, he is the breadwinner. Well, let's take a break, and then we'll come back with your questions for Open Mic Calls. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with a confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Allen, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. Enjoyed the uh, little, um, you know, stroll through the past. I I liked the 50s and the early 60s. Things got really strange after John Kennedy was assassinated. I was 13 years old when that happened, November 22nd, 1963. The same day, by the way, that uh, C.S. Lewis died. The same day that Aldous Huxley died, all three of them. In fact, there's a fascinating piece that... um, uh, was written, it's called Between Two Worlds. Uh, Peter Kraft was the author of that, and it's it's a obviously fictitious conversation between heaven and hell, or maybe that's it. It's either between two worlds or between heaven and hell, where these three individuals who had very different understandings of the nature of reality have conversation while they're waiting for the final disposition of their souls. But anyway, that that event... Um, was a, a a real. It was a it was a huge, um, in a certain sense, game changer. Obviously, any event where 
a beloved president is assassinated is going to be a jolt to the system, uh, just like 9-11 was a jolt to us. But um, but there was something else that was going on. It was all the aftermath and trying to figure out who's responsible for that, and a tremendous amount of distrust after that that fueled, uh, in, in to a great degree, the counterculture uh, of of the mid to late 60s. And that whole movement that, of course, I was, um, I participated in since I graduated from high school in 68. And uh, so that was, I just, I was right at the epicenter of that. Though I was in Chicago, not in California, which is really where it was happening the most. It was still hitting the whole country. In fact, it was, it was uh, in the spring of 68, that, or the summer of 68, that they had the Democratic National Convention there in Chicago, and all the riots that were associated with that. It was also that year, 68, that both both Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated. Um, and so these were all more jolts to the system, and I think this ended up changing the ethos of our culture radically and pushing us into a, a very bizarre direction. And when you sow to the whirlwind, when you sow to the wind— the prophet said, you reap the whirlwind, and uh, we've been doing that ever since. Uh, so my boyhood was very satisfying, and the culture wasn't weird. It was much more normal. It doesn't mean there weren't bad things. Obviously there were, but there is no comparison, you know. All right, so let's take a call here, and uh, this one is on the issue of the problem of evil and free will and what happens to us in heaven. Will we be free to sin? It's from Edgar Mendez. Uh, let's hear from Edgar. Hi, my name is Edgar. I have a, a question. Um, I've been able to understand that one of the reasons there's wickedness in humanity is because God would have to control us pretty much to the point where we have no free will. Uh, my question is, how can we expect to never sin again in heaven? Adam and Eve had a choice. Does that mean that we're not going to have a choice anymore? Uh, do we, or will we have free will still? I've thought before that the mere presence of God would make it impossible for sin to exist near him. Uh, but then the question arises, why didn't he create us in heaven to begin with, mm -hmm. if that is where ultimately he wants us to be? free of sin. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, Edgar, this is a great question, and it is a hard one to answer because it requires, or at least portions of it are hard to answer, uh, because it requires speculation. When it comes to the question, the broader question of why did God create a world in which evil was possible? Uh, we have only speculation to fall back on because God did not tell us why he did that. Some of the speculations are better than others, by the way, and uh, one that you mentioned I have a real problem with. So you start out by asking if evil exists. Well, of course, we all know that it does. So given that evil exists, and I think that was your sense, if it does, then why do we have evil? Why was, why was that a necessary, or that possibility of evil, a necessary part of the world 
that God made? Well, the answer is because of free will, okay? So this is called the free will defense. And um, if, if the way one characterizes the free will defense is that if we can't commit evil, then we don't have freedom. If that's the way the free will defense is cashed out, I think you have a serious problem. That is the way, Edgar, you suggested this or offered it. And by the way, I'm not surprised a lot of people offer it. You might just be reflecting what other people have said. And I have friends who are apologists who characterize this issue the same way. But there's a, there's a I think, a fatal flaw in this uh, way of thinking, that is that God uh, has to allow the possibility of the evil, or else there won't be any meaningful freedom. And, and and I think it's evident when we ask this question: Is can God sin? Is there any possibility that God can sin? Of course, the classic answer is no. His moral perfection, his nature is untainted by sin, and it is not possible for him to sin. Can God do whatever he wants? He can do whatever he wants. But everything he will want to do will be consistent with moral perfection. All right? So, well, wait a minute. If God can't sin, following this line of logic, we'd have to say that God isn't free. Because on this way of thinking, freedom requires the ability, free will, the ability to do wrong to do immorality. And if God can't do wrong, then he couldn't have freedom. Not certainly in in that sense of the word. And you see the problem. If freedom is characterized that way, then God's not free. But of course, God is free. He is the most free creature, some would argue, precisely because he is not restrained or restricted by an evil nature or the ability to do wrong. He is the most free. He can do everything that's perfectly good. That would be the the epitome, given one way of looking at it, of freedom, to have the ability and the power and the will to always do the good. That's a pretty good freedom. And notice that he is choosing whatever he wants to choose. But everything that's within that range of desire is going to be morally pure. So God certainly has freedom. He is not, he is not, uh, you know, determined in any way. He can make his own decisions. Uh, but there is one kind of decision that can't be made by God, and that is the decision to do evil. So it seems to me then, when we think about this, that that um, freedom, meaningful freedom is not connected to the ability to do evil. So this way of answering it is not going to work, in my view, because what it does is it obviates God's freedom if God can't do evil, if he's incapable of that because of his moral perfection. So so you can have freedom and still not be able to sin. Now, this, this, this raises two issues— Oh, one to the positive, one to the negative, and the positive one is, well, then I guess we can go to heaven 
And in virtue of the resurrection and the transformation, mortality puts on immortality, perishable puts on imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15, that something is radically changed inside of us so that our natures are no longer fallen. And not only are they no longer fallen because Adam's nature wasn't fallen, he still had the ability to sin, our natures will be such fixed in moral perfection by the glorification that comes from the resurrection that we will not be able to sin either. So we will share a quality that is one that God can share with us, and that is moral perfection. God is certainly capable of making us morally perfect, and within that arena of moral perfection, we have plenty of choices that we'll be able to make that are our choices, consistent with our desires. They are free choices, okay? So we can we can have genuine freedom, the kind of freedom God has, the best kind of freedom, in heaven, even though we will not be capable of sinning. And by the way, that's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing that we're not capable of sinning. Because chances are, if we were capable of sinning, uh, then we would. You know, there are, there are some people who do not believe in original sin. That is, they, these are called Pelagians, and uh, they hold the view that though everyone does sin, they don't have an inclination to do it when they were born. Now, I don't think that's sound or biblical. There's no original sin. There's no culpability for Adam's sin as the federal head of the, of the race, and there's no tendency to sin inherited from Adam. That means we're all born kind of like Adam. But isn't it interesting that if we are all born kind of like Adam, we all end up sinning? Even though we have uh, a native uh, innocence, moral innocence, we still end up sinning. So how is it going to be if we get into heaven on that view? I think the view is wrong. But even for those who hold the view, how is it going to be if we get into heaven and we have that native innocence restored to us, that w- w- what guarantees we won't sin? Now, I have a, a friend, a colleague, who says, well, because we know how bad it was when we did, we experienced that, and uh, we're not going to do that stupid thing again. Well, this is completely unconvincing to me. Frankly, I don't want to be saddled with that responsibility. Um, I'm looking forward to a time when I will be like Jesus, because I see him as he is. And I will be sharing in the the communicable property of moral perfection, uh, and I don't ever have to worry about sin anymore. It won't even be on my mind. It won't be within my range of options. I will be free to choose all kinds of good things. All right? So I I hope that, that observation about freedom does not entail the ability to sin, puts to rest a big part of this concern. But it still raises the question, then why is it that God gave us the ability to sin now, when sometime in the future He is going to change us so that we won't have the ability to sin? Why didn't He just start out that way? And um, the answer is, I don't know. And I don't think anybody does, because this is another one of the mysteries about God's choices 
that we don't have inside information about. Now, it doesn't mean we can't speculate, and I do speculate, um, with a light touch in the story of reality. And what I suggest there, and what I'm offering now is what's called a theodicy, and a theodicy is a, a an explanation for why there is evil in the world. All right? and uh, But it's speculative. Why did God allow this? And what I say in the story of reality is it seems that God created us to be in friendship with Him. And given that God is perfectly happy because of His moral perfection, um, He has created us to be in a happy friendship with Him, inviting us to develop godliness as a practiced virtue rather than something simply given to us. Now, that is a speculation, but it is suggested in at least one passage. Actually, two. Now I can think of one of them is 1 Timothy, where Paul writes to Timothy that physical exercise profits a little. Pump and iron, okay, I get it. But godliness, now there's something else. That's a means of great gain for it holds a promise not just for this life, but also for the life to come. So clearly, there is an element that as we are pursuing virtue and godliness in this life, this has ramifications for the final state of affairs, eschatological ramifications, what everything will turn out to be. Now, I think this raises a question. If our godliness has an impact not just in this life, well, that's obvious, but also in the life to come, what does that look like? And I don't know. I mean, we're all going to be morally perfect, right? Yeah, so then that means we're all equal. Well, I don't know if that means we're all equal. We may no longer have any ability to sin, but that doesn't mean that we're all going to be at the same moral stature. And the way one person suggested I think about this, and it's just an analogy, but you can have two perfect light bulbs. (laughs) One burns at 60 watts, the other one burns at 60,000 watts. They are perfect light bulbs. There's no darkness. They light things up, but they have a different capacity to produce light. Well, that makes sense to me, and maybe that's the way it works out. I'm not sure. But I am sure it makes a difference. And it does seem that pursuing godliness, developing godliness, developing long-suffering, for example, can't be developed in a world in which there is no suffering as a result of evil being able to be a forgiving person and overlooking wrongs and those kinds of things, that can't be done unless there's something to forgive or some wrong to overlook. Perseverance through hardship and difficulty can't be accomplished, and it can't be be a, a, something that feeds our, our development of our virtue unless we experience that kind of hardship. Okay, so these are all things that could easily be worked into a a credible theodicy. Why did God allow evil? 
Well, it wasn't because he had to allow us to do evil or else we would be free. This is just obviously false. God is free. We'll be free in many ways in heaven, just like God is free, even though we won't be free to sin. Who wants to be free that way? But we are in a lifetime now where we have that capability, and um, since the fall, we are fighting sin all the time. I mean, the classical way of characterizing it is with Adam, it was passe non peccari, to use the very little Latin I know. It was possible not to sin. After Adam, uh, oh, and let me let me put it this way: it's passe non peccari and passe peccari. It's possible not to sin and possible to sin. So he had both options. All right. Once there was the fall for mankind on classical theology, not Pelagianism, but classical Christian theology, it's non posse peccari. It's not. <laughs> it's non possible, non peccari. Okay. It's not possible not to sin. But when the resurrection happens, it will be non posse peccari, not possible to sin. So, Adam could have done either. We can only sin, and it, I mean, we can do good too, but it, it's not possible for us not to sin in this life, and then it will be not possible for us to sin in the next life. That's the classical view, and it's because of the nature of the resurrection. And so, this life is the only time we have to pursue virtue, to pursue godliness, to to to. Uh, to combine our wills, if you will, with God's desire, our wills with God's will, God's moral will, along with the help of the Holy Spirit, to see the, to accomplish the sanctification in our life that God wants us to develop, the godliness without which we will not see Him, is one way the New Testament puts it. And so there is this encouragement, then, that we pursue that. You know, it says in Titus chapter 2 that the grace—and this is to make the point that the pursuit of godliness is not based on—is um, not a works-based righteousness. We're not doing it to get ourselves saved. We are doing it to please God and to, in, in a certain sense, enrich and develop and expand our souls. For godliness that is profitable for this life and for the life that is to come. And Titus says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. In other words, this is the salvation provided for everyone, teaching us. What is teaching us? The grace of God is teaching us to do what? To deny ungodliness. The grace of God has appeared, ellipsis, teaching us to deny ungodliness. And in that, in that passage there in chapter 2 of Titus, you have the two things working together, no contradiction. God's grace has come, and God's grace has provided forgiveness and provi- provided a capability to do the next thing that is appropriate to our forgiveness and our regenerated state, and that is to pursue godliness. And as we work with the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in our life, and put to death vice and develop virtue, we experience godliness in this life and the benefits that it brings to us, and it also stores up something for the future. Now, this last point 
has a lot of traction in my life. Because as I encounter difficulty, hostility, um, hard circumstances, unfair circumstances, injustice in my own life, and we all experience this, I realize that if I act appropriately, if I entrust myself to a faithful uh, Creator in doing what is right, that's the last verse of 1 Peter 4, when I do that, I am not just choosing the right direction in the moment, I am storing up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, nor thief can break in and and steal. I am making a deposit for eternity. And uh, as I get older, I'm thinking more about those eternal deposits than the temporal deposits, especially in an inflationary period. (laughs) That can all be destroyed, but what we lay up in heaven as our treasure there, it cannot be. And so this is my sense at the moment. I'm holding to this lightly, but the reason that God allows evil in the world is because there is a teaching in the New Testament that what we do good in this life makes a difference in the next life. And so in order for us to grow into the virtue that God wants us to grow into, there has to be the freedom that we have to do evil in this life, and then the freedom in by His grace to partner with Him to overcome evil in our own lives and help others to do that as well. And that makes a difference in eternity. So there's my shot. All right, friends, thank you for being part of our show. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.